Sasuke goes for it again. Oh, he just can't do it. You just cannot be that good. That is an amazing goal. I think you scored a goal every time he's had a shot. What's going on, guys? We are back with the 50 Plus One Football Podcast, your home for all things Premier League and Bundesliga. We decided to kick off our offseason with a very, very special guest here today. You might know him as the voice of FIFA since 2019 for all your international matches or the English voice of German football. Here is Derek Ray. How are you, Derek? I'm very well, Lewis. Thank you for the invitation, first of all, and thank you for that introduction. You're very welcome. <laughs> Obviously, people know you from uh, FIFA since 2019. A lot of people will know you as the the voice of the Bundesliga on the World Feed and, and ESPN. But just how did those things sort of come about for you? Because I know before you've done other leagues and you've done a, a, a few World Cups as well. Yeah, well, I go back quite a long way, Billy. I go back to 1986 professionally. That's when my career started with the BBC in Scotland. And I've been quite lucky down the years, as you have to be as a commentator, as a broadcaster in the football industry. And I think I've been able to keep moving down the years. I spent time with the BBC, as I mentioned. I moved to the USA initially to be the press officer for the World Cup Organising Committee in 1994 and the lead-up work ahead of that. And then not long after that, my relationship with ESPN began. And it's been a fairly constant relationship throughout. I have had a couple of spells away from ESPN and I am freelance these days, which allows me to take on a lot of work for a variety of different broadcasters. But I've been commentating all this time and I can't honestly imagine doing anything else. The uh, EA Sports FIFA gig came up not long after I'd left the UK. I'd been in the UK market for the best part of a decade and it wasn't something I was expecting at all. But I got a call from EA Sports asking if I was interested. My name had come up as somebody who they thought would be a good fit for the video game. And here we are several years later and I'm still doing that. The Bundesliga work that you referenced, that is something that comes from the heart. It goes back to my young days in Aberdeen as a German student. It was always my favourite subject at school. But it took me until really into my 40s to be able to work with the German language professionally, even though it was always something that uh, was part of me and continues to be. And so the Bundesliga working for the World Feed, as well as being the lead voice for ESPN now, because they have the rights, ESPN have the rights in the United States to the Bundesliga. That is a bit like the ultimate dream come true for me, because it's Germany, it's German, it's the Bundesliga, it's all these things rolled into one. And I always say to people, I have a, a big smile on my face whenever I fly into Germany. And I was just there again recently. And that will forever be the case, I think one of those things where you never work a day in your life if you do something that you love. It's so true. And I say that to young uh, aspiring broadcasters. You've really got to love it. And it is a job and you've got to treat it professionally, but you do have to have that love for it. And if the love ever goes, it's probably the time to think about a different career. Well, Derek, you did mention uh, the love for Germany and German football, uh, something that we all definitely share and uh being german myself uh yeah. i can definitely definitely sympathize with the uh difficulty in the german language 
Um, that's definitely one. But you, as you said, been working with the Bundesliga for quite a while now. And we were wondering, are there any differences in football culture that you definitely have noticed over the years um, between Germany and the UK? Oh, 100%. And I know, Lewis, you know this coming from the same background. Uh, it struck me when I first went to Germany as a, a student in the 1980s that it was a very different feel. It has moved on since then because in those days we didn't have 50 plus one. That's something that came in in the 1990s. But I always had the feeling that the relationship was different, that uh, fans are not customers in Germany, whereas I think in the Anglo world, they very much are treated as customers. But in Germany, fans are in many areas with many clubs, members and fully fledged decision makers. So I think that's where it starts. And, you know, how is that reflected in the day to day workings of a football club? And how is that reflected in the day to day or week to week experiences of a fan? Well, of course, it starts with everything being more affordable. If you look at the ticket prices nowadays in England, for example, they are up there and it's not affordable for your average family. In Germany, everybody makes sure that that is not the case. That, yeah, if you want to pay a lot of money for the best seat in the house, you can pay a lot of money for the best seat in the house. If you want to stand in the Kurve, in the area behind the goal, then you can do that and you can do it at a pretty low price. And many people choose to do that. And of course, part of the joined up thinking of German football that very much appeals to me is the fact that your public transport is included in the ticket price. So that's several hours before the game, several hours after the game within the local area. You jump on the U-Bahn or the S-Bahn or the bus or whatever the local mode of transport is. And that will get you to the game. And we can only dream about that sort of thing in, in other countries. So I think that is an example to everyone um, as to what German football is about. And I think fans have more rights in Germany. And I think they express those rights more freely. I think uh, in England, I don't want to be seen to be beating up on England. I'm not trying to do that. But I think it is very much the opposite in terms of fan culture. I think fans have more or less accepted that they are customers and that the rich people who run their clubs will decide everything and that the rights they have are very limited. And it's even gone to the stage now where I see on social media, I see fans of clubs almost begging for a rich oligarch to come in and save them. And that's a big difference with Germany as well, because as you know, as I'm sure people listening know, in Germany, you don't really have that. You don't have this uh, idea that, that fans have uh, along the lines that, yeah, you know, let's have a, a rich benefactor come in and um, and decide how our club is going to be run. But, um, you know, going back to that idea, would you say that it is almost a, a little bit problematic that, you know, in relation to where German football could be going from playing standpoint, that they do... Um, you know, look at their uh, fans too much almost, that they don't prioritize, you know, looking at where they could also be going from a business standpoint. 
I think it's always a balance. And I think in Germany, everybody is conscious of that balance. And yeah, of course, business plays its part and sponsorship plays its part and investors also play their part. But if we get to the stage, this is just my opinion, we get to the stage where the investors are far too powerful and the fans don't have a voice, then I think we've gone in the wrong direction. I quite like the way Hans-Joachim Watzke, the CEO of Dortmund, has summed this up. And he has summed it up by saying, we are Germany, we can't be England. We shouldn't try to be England. We shouldn't try to copy that model. We must go our own way. But, of course, it does mean attracting investment. However, 50 plus one is pretty sacrosanct for most clubs. And, you know, we still are seeing that Bayern, for example, can be phenomenally successful in Germany and on the European front. Maybe they're at a slight disadvantage. But I think we have to take into account what fans view this as. And they view German football as something for the community, an extension of wider community, if you like. And the day that that goes away is the day that many fans will disappear. So this balance is really, really important. People often say to me, you know, why is the experience of going to a game in Germany such a good one? And it's such a good one because of the setup, because everybody is involved on a community level. 50 plus one is part of it. Yeah, there's money involved as well, there's sponsorship and there's marketing, but we have this German path that is quite unique now in world football. And I personally would be very disappointed if someday in the future it became Premier League light and we did away with these structures that make certain of the fact that the fans are not customers, they are members and they are decision makers. Again, my opinion. Well, you, you mentioned the 50 plus one uh, rule. We are the, the 50 plus one football yeah. podcast. I, I've seen some stuff and I know you tweeted about, I believe it was Gladbach's uh, general meeting where they had that discussion about potentially doing away with the 50 plus one rule. I think, would that be something that, like you said, you'd be sad to see, but do you think it's something that more clubs would be looking to consider if sort of financially they plateau like they, they look to be doing? I don't really think so. No. And I think this week we had the, the DFL, a Mitglieder Versammlung, which is basically the, the assembly of all the members of the DFL, so that's all the clubs in the Bundesliga and in the Zweite Bundesliga. And one of the things that Donata Hopfen, the CEO of the DFL, said was that 50 plus one is not negotiable. It's not up for discussion at present. I think this is something you hear more from the outside than from within Germany. I think that most of the clubs know that they would be doing their members a huge disservice if they suddenly snap their fingers and said, we're going to do away with 50 plus one. Now, some people will say, OK, there already are exceptions to the 50 plus one rule. And they will throw out Leipzig as the obvious example of that. They might throw out Wolfsburg and Leverkusen and Hoffenheim. But again, these are exceptions. And, you know, in the case of Leverkusen, there's a rich history there. They didn't start off as... Uh, the, the football arm of, of Bayer, they started off as the, the Werkself, as they're referred to, the factory 11 of the, the factory team that was set up for the employees in the early days of Bayer in Leverkusen. So uh, I think we have to look at each case individually. Um, 
I think there are undoubtedly some people at various clubs who would quite like to see changes and would like to see 50 plus one being tweaked. But I think ultimately it would come down to disappointing a lot of people and changing the fabric of what German football is. And um, I'm not pretending that it's not without challenges. Uh, it certainly is. But there are some very clever people in German football and it's incumbent upon them to come up with this. And I keep using this word balance between keeping the traditions alive because you know, that is the heartbeat of German football. If we lose those traditions, then we lose what German football is. And we ask the question, what does it become? But at the same time, attracting investment and keeping that financial path going as well. Uh, we saw with the European Super League, all the backlash from that. I know a lot of English fans have called for something like the 50 plus one to be implemented in the UK. That was the big uh, takeaway from that was everyone was like, well, you know, Bayern, Dortmund, they didn't go in for it. Is that because of the 50 plus one? But do you think it would work in England, given how much power the owners already have? I think it's probably too far gone in England, to be honest. I think it's something that really would have had to come in two or three decades ago. As I mentioned earlier, it seems to me that in England, there is very much the syndrome of um, you know, my dad is bigger than your dad kind of thing. And um, fans proceed on that basis and, and they simply want the uh, the most powerful, the wealthiest owner possible. And we saw that with Newcastle, I think, a few months ago. And I know that in the German world, most fans looked at that and thought, you know, heaven help us. We never want to be in a situation like that. And we will take our club being relegated to the Zweite Bundesliga. Schalke is a good example of that. A huge Traditionsverein, you know, very popular all over Germany and in other parts of the world as well. But, you know, their fans went through this relegation. They're back in the Bundesliga, will be back next season. But if you ask most of them, what would you rather have? A situation like this where there are financial problems, um, but we keep our soul intact or you go to a Newcastle situation? Most would say without hesitation, we want our club. And we want our club in this form and we're not prepared to compromise on that. So I think this is the difficulty in England. It would take a huge sea change in attitudes. And I think fans have come to expect this world of wealth around them. And um, yeah, for, for me, uh, I, it's not something that I can really envisage. That's quite interesting uh, that, that you, you say that because it's one of those ones that we both said it's something that you would have to change massively. But because of the the ownership model and the culture in Germany, they do tend to sell a lot of the players from the league. And the latest big name to go is Erling Haaland to Manchester City. Uh, we've, we've had a couple City fans sort of ask us to ask you uh, how you think he'll fit in at Man City. And then we'll also talk about uh, like the, the selling culture in, in the Bundesliga. But how would yeah. you think Haaland will do it in the Premier League with Man City? Well, first of all, he's a phenomenal talent. He's a natural talent. And I think he's the sort of player who will thrive wherever he goes. Having said that, I'm not sure if I were his advisor, which I'm not, I'm not sure that I would have said to him, Manchester City is the perfect club for your style. Now, why do I say that? Because... I think Holland, having observed him very closely now for more than a couple of years, wearing the colours of Borussia Dortmund, I think um, Holland is 
much more suited to being a counter-attacking forward than to being the centrepiece of a possession-based side such as Manchester City. But again, he's intelligent enough, he's talented enough to be able to prosper in that environment with a very good coach in Pep Guardiola, who, heavens knows, has made so many players better. So I think it stands to reason that that should happen as well. But I think Holland is at his best when he is playing in a counter-attacking setup, um, when he's able to accelerate away from retreating defences. And that's why I thought that Real Madrid might actually be the better fit for him at this point in his career. Uh, not that Real Madrid always play on the counter-attack. Of course, in the recent Champions League final, they well, they played on the counter-attack, but they defended very much in depth. But I've watched a lot of Real Madrid this season as well. And the strength of Karim Benzema often lies in the fact that he is really effective on the counter-attack and can score goals in that sort of situation. But he's going to Manchester City. Uh, I think he will be a success. I think he's only going to get better working with Guardiola. And who knows, playing for that possession-based side might even add an extra string to his already impressive bow. Yeah, I'm uh, not looking forward to uh, having to watch uh, my team defend against Erling Haaland. But um, it's it's the latest in a long list of, of players. You know, we've had Kai Havertz go, Sancho's gone. Uh, before that, Dembele at Dortmund, Aubameyang, probably Bellingham in, in a season or two. Do you think that there is this sort of view that the Bundesliga is almost, from the outside, looking in? like a step-up league to the Premier League or perceived better leagues? I think it has probably become more that in the last few years, but I don't think anybody in Germany particularly bothers about that. I mean, I have to say it doesn't bother me necessarily because I always feel that as a commentator, I'm at a bit of an advantage because I'm seeing a lot of these players come through the ranks, getting their first real chance at a high level and it is a very high level we're talking about in the Bundesliga. It remains one of the best leagues in the world. But the fact is, the Premier League is where the money is. And that's where players are, for the most part, going to aspire to play. You know, I think that's just a fact of life. But I don't think it diminishes the Bundesliga at all. I think that we're still seeing some of these players. We saw Jadon Sancho for... Um, a couple of years in Dortmund, and we saw how good he can be there. We're seeing at the moment Jude Bellingham, and let's face it, Jude Bellingham would not have had these opportunities in England that he's getting with a high-level club like Borussia Dortmund. So I think we have to judge it on its merits and what it is. I'm always very uncomfortable about the idea that, and, and I think you know your question hinted at this earlier, the idea that we should judge the Bundesliga on the basis that we judge the Premier League. They are two totally different leagues with different structures, as we've discussed, with different clubs who have their own ethos and leagues that, quite frankly, have their own ethos in comparison with each other. And um, so on that basis, it, it's not really a, a huge problem for me. And I don't think your average German fan goes in thinking, oh, my goodness, we're going to lose this player to the Premier League. What will become of us? Because the attitude is, well, it's up to us to go out and find the next Sancho and the next Bellingham and the next Haaland. And German clubs, I think, are better at that than the Premier League. I think you've got to give them credit for that. I think in the Premier League, because they can buy the finished article, that is what they do. And um, I wouldn't underestimate the fact either that Bundesliga sporting directors are very clever about prizing out of Premier League clubs 
the highest price. And many have told me in the last few years, yeah, there are two prices for a player. There is the price and there is the Premier League price. And they know that uh, Premier League clubs, until recently, I think they've got much better at this. Until recently, Premier League clubs had a tendency to essentially just throw money at a player without really worrying about the consequences. I think it's to their credit that they've actually modelled themselves on German clubs much more in the last few years. If you look at most Premier League clubs now, the setup in place mirrors much more what a Bundesliga club does. The sporting director in England is not as high profile. We don't hear from him the way that we do in Germany. The sporting director is arguably more important than the coach in Germany because he will stand the test of time and might be there for four, five, six years. The coach perhaps only for 18 months to two years. But um, I think if we are comparing and contrasting, we have to say these are different setups, different leagues, and England does some things very well. Germany does other things particularly well. Well, it's interesting you say the sporting directors will stand the test of time because I have to say that there are um, or there is one particular club that comes to mind where a sporting director is in some pretty hot water at the minute. Um, and being a Bayern fan, I have my own take on that one. But one could almost say that there is a bit of a mess at Bayern at the minute, at least when it comes to the management. Would you say that had it started with the appointment of Hasan Zadihamidzic, or do you think that there has been, you know, a the, the change in management didn't work as well um, since Hoeneß and Rummenigge uh, went into retirement? Yeah, well, you mentioned the two key figures going back over an entire generation in Uli Hoeneß and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. And I think it was always going to be difficult for Bayern to function as well, quite frankly. And uh, they're still on the periphery, but no longer office holders at Bayern. And there's been, frankly, a lot on Hasan Zarihamidzic's plate since he became sporting director, now Sportvorstand, uh, sporting CEO. And I think that some of the criticism has been fair. Some of it perhaps has been a little bit below the belt. Where I would criticise him is in the area of squad depth. I think that he has misfired with some of his choices in terms of um, players, let's say, 14 to 20 in the squad. I think Bayern, for the last few years, have not necessarily had the biggest, deepest squad in Germany. And they should really have that, based on their resources, based on their popularity, based on all the inherent advantages that Bayern München has in comparison with the other teams in the Bundesliga. But I would say that if you look at Leipzig at the moment, I think they probably have a better overall squad than Bayern. So whose fault is that? Well, you do have to point to Hasan Zalihamidzic. He is very much under fire. Um, I, you know, when I think of players like Budasar and Mark Roca and some of these supporting cast players, um, yeah, you could ask the question, Bayern standard or not? Probably not on balance. And so that, I think, has added a little bit of pressure when players have been injured. And of course, we're still in uh, Corona times. And when players get Corona and, go, and have to be out for a while. Um, so I, I think that it's an interesting one. Um, he's somebody who I think everybody at Bayern wished very well. And now he's fighting for his job. There's no doubt about that. He, he is in a position where he's under more and more scrutiny. 
And at a time when it looks as though Robert Lewandowski is going to leave Bayern, we don't know that for sure, but the, the signs are, I'm having a hard time in my head picturing Lewandowski staying at the moment. Um, with all that going on in the background, this is especially testing for Zari Hamidzic. And I think to go back to Rummenigge and Hoeneß, and again, not everybody is in love with Rummenigge and Hoeneß, especially fans of other clubs. But I think what they did very well was they knew how to, and Hoeneß in particular, they knew how to take the pressure off the other people at the club. And Hoeneß would often do it by making himself the story, by saying something outlandish that would get reported on and discussed for three or four days. And then we would sometimes forget about the other uh, issues beneath the surface. Um, and Brazzo, to, to use his nickname, Hasan Zalihamidzic, hasn't quite got those same skills. But what I would say is very few people do. Well, going back to Robert Lewandowski, as you mentioned, you know, with him almost looking as a sure candidate to be leaving the club, I wanted to pick apart a little bit, you know, how that came to be. And what would your, you know, what is the starting point? for the whole saga is it the fact that uh the Bayern bosses didn't uh you know go to him for contract talks early enough or why do you think the situation is the way it is right now with Robert Lewandowski and Bayern seemingly being at polar opposites uh where contract talks are concerned well I think the the word of the season Lewis and you'll know this as a as a German speaker, as a mother tongue German speaker, the word of the season really is Wertschätzung. Um, yeah. Really, it, it's a great German word. And for people who don't know it, I mean, on the one hand, it's valuation, but it's really appreciation as well. It's sort of the two things rolled into one. Uh, you know, this, this Wertschätzung that either is there or isn't there. And, uh, you know, Niklas Zule, somebody who, who didn't necessarily feel that he was being properly appreciated and he's going to leave. But of course, on, on the subject of Lewandowski, we're talking about a very big fish in the context of world football. Um, I don't know. There's part of me that actually thinks that much as he might not feel the Wertschätzung from Bayern, uh, that maybe that there's part of Lewandowski that has wanted this new challenge for a while anyway. And you only have so many years as a footballer. I think he probably in his mind also has concluded that he's done everything he's going to do with Bayern. Uh, and, and I think that is fair comment. I mean, you can only win the um, Torjega Canone, the goal-scoring crown, so many times. Uh, he's already managed to get past Gerd Müller in terms of goals in a single campaign. He's won everything trophy-wise that there is to win, including the Champions League. So what do you do late in your career? You probably do look for a new challenge and maybe a new country. But I do think that uh, clearly there have been some mistakes made by Bayern when it comes to assessing this overall situation. Part of me thinks that Bayern have been kind of keeping their cards close to their chest because they wanted, for obvious reasons, to see who else was out there in the market. Now, Erling Haaland, I think for the most part, has been destined either for Manchester City, where he's going, or Real Madrid, less so Bayern. But many people close to it have told me that Bayern were in that conversation for a long time. And they didn't want to necessarily just automatically lose out on Erling Haaland. So if you're doing that, 
you can't have Erling Haaland and Robert Lewandowski in the same squad. Not in the Bundesliga. Maybe in the Premier League you could do something like that. I don't know. Maybe in Spain. Um, but not with Bayern. It would be one or the other. So I think that contributed to it. And, um, you know, time will tell. In the fullness of time, we'll get a, a better picture, a better feel for exactly what happened behind the scenes here. Um, but he's not getting any younger. Bayern, at a certain point, do have to rebuild and rethink. But it's not ideal when you lose somebody like Lewandowski, who has been so important, I mean, so hugely important to the Bayern story going back over a number of years now. So would you then also say, you know, Lewandowski has won everything there is to win. Um, the Ballon d'Or being the big, big trophy that he has missed out on. You know, he did win the FIFA the best awards now twice in a row, but he missed out on the Ballon d'Or. One big thing would be is, do you think that playing in the Bundesliga, a player like Robert Lewandowski will not get the same credit from international media, which is needed to win the Ballon d'Or in uh, comparison to if he were playing in the Premier League or in La Liga? It does seem that that's the case. I'm really puzzled as to why it is. Because the Bundesliga, as I mentioned to you earlier, is a high-level league, you know? And I think what he's done speaks for itself. And it's not been replicated by anybody else in recent years. And in some of those recent years, Bayern have demonstrated themselves to be the best club in Europe. So I, I, I'm not really sure. I, I think it was um, a strange turn of events that saw Lewandowski not win the Ballon d'Or and that clearly rankled with him. And maybe internally he thought to himself, OK, well, if, I, if I'm not going to get the respect and if the Bundesliga is not going to get the respect, then I have to go somewhere else where that respect will be automatic. Um, I wouldn't get hung up on the Ballon d'Or so much because if you look at the people who are judging the Ballon d'Or, they may not be watching the Bundesliga, but it doesn't mean that the Bundesliga has anything to be ashamed of. And I think the, the best FIFA awards, frankly, are more representative. But I can understand why that may have been part of Robert Lewandowski's thinking. Just to circle back quickly, you mentioned uh, about Niklas Zula leaving. He's obviously going to Borussia yeah. Dortmund. Do you think that with the problems at Bayern and Lewandowski seemingly out of the door, do you think now would be the perfect time for the likes of Dortmund, potentially Leipzig, to strike and try and go and beat Bayern to a, a Bundesliga title? It's tempting to think that way. And I think a lot of people will think that way. But we have to remember Bayern are still the best resource club in the Bundesliga and it's not even close, you know. So I think sometimes the expectations placed upon, especially for Hussia Dortmund, are, are very unfairly high. You know, I, I think that, and again, this is mostly from people outside the Bundesliga. They look at it and go, why, why don't Dortmund just, why aren't they miraculously better? You know, why, why can't somebody just, you know, one of these years... Uh, overtake Bayern. Again, the resources difference is significant. And so you've really got to have a situation and a season uh, when uh, Bayern mess it up, you know, and they haven't really shown signs of doing that over the course of the season in the last few years. Now, could it happen next season? It's possible. And I do like what Dortmund are doing in terms of their squad reconstruction. And I think what's quite significant is they're doing it with 
German national team players, bringing in, as we mentioned, Nick Lazule, Nico Schlotterbeck, uh, Karim Adeyemi. You know, I think that this German core will help Dortmund. I think it's something that it's easy to say, yeah, bring in German national team players and you'll be successful. But I think not having that need for an adaptation period, I think all these German national team players understand who Dortmund are, what it is to to pull on that yellow and, and black um, shirt. And I think that um, that will help them in terms of their rebuilding. But they're not the finished squad either. And there are still uh, deficits there and weaknesses which have to be addressed. And whether they can go toe-to-toe with Bayern over a whole season, I'm not sure. Leipzig might be the likelier team to do that in the short term. Um, again, we'll see what happens this summer with regard to some of their high-priced players. Um, I, I think the signs are that they're not of a mind to sell on Christopher Nkunku, even though there will be many clubs trying to price him away from Leipzig. And so I think that, you know, last season was a little bit of a, a, a mess-up for Leipzig, if I can put it that way, with Jesse Marsh at the start. It didn't work. Um, you know, you could get into whose fault that was. Domenico Tedesco, for the most part, has had it much smoother. The team playing more in the manner that they had been playing under Julian Nagelsmann. So I think that there are definitely are possibilities there. But I still, you know, have the idea in my head that for anybody to be able to, to finish ahead of Bayern is going to take something quite extraordinary from them and also a big collapse from Bayern. Yeah, you don't want to underestimate them because we've seen in the last few seasons, we've picked up on it as well. Bayern will lose will drop points and then Dortmund or Leipzig will drop points yeah. as well. Uh, so just to change uh, topic uh, a, a tiny bit, we started this because uh, during Project Restart when football came back after COVID times and uh, we just wanted to get like your story and things like about how it was to broadcast and commentate during uh, COVID times when everything was closed down and you know the, the road back to recovery with quite far down that road, but we're not at the end of it yet. So what's your take on on broadcasting during COVID times? Well, on a personal level, it was actually very frustrating at the start of the pandemic because living in Boston, Massachusetts, far away from the action, it was impossible for me to get close to it. And we weren't at the stage technologically at that point of being able to commentate remotely uh, on an effortless basis. That took several months. So what I did really to amuse myself the first two, three months of the pandemic was I tried to to broadcast on social media and create forums for people, hopefully inclusive forums. And so a lot of that was trying to explain the culture of the Bundesliga because I thought I have a passion for this. I know that there are many people out there who probably would have the same passion if they had the information. And that ended up being fabulously rewarding from my point of view. I don't mean financially rewarding because I didn't make a penny off it, but it was rewarding on an, an intellectual and on an empathetic level to, to find out that there were kindred spirits out there who really wanted to know more about German football. And then, of course, the Bundesliga was the first league to come back um, in May, June time of 2020. And I think that brought a few more people to the, the party. And so those first few months were difficult. Then uh, ESPN had the rights beginning in the autumn of 2020. So I was more active with that. And then towards the end of that year, the Bundesliga World Feed came up with technology that allowed us to broadcast from anywhere. 
And I think this is the one thing that's come out of a pandemic from a broadcasting point of view. There's the old saying, um, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think it is true. For years, I've been hearing from sound technicians, from producers, oh, there'll come a point when you won't have to go into a studio to broadcast games. It'll all be done from your home. Now, this was 30 years ago, um, and it never happened until the onset of a pandemic. So I think innovation has been at the forefront of of our lives, really. I mean, we think about, in, in most aspects of working life, the number of Zoom meetings and even the, the format we're using for this discussion here, the number of Zoom meetings or, or Google or Teams, you name the, the company involved, the number of meetings that we all have now on a daily or weekly basis, we've lost count. And prior to the start of the pandemic, that wasn't really happening. So I think that uh, that has been the one thing that has come through during the, the pandemic period, has been trying to do things on a more innovative basis and not ruling things out, not automatically saying, well, that just wouldn't work. That is something that, that simply um, would be off the table. And um, yeah, we would always rather be on site, but it's not always possible. So you find the next best thing. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting because we had to, uh, through my job, we had to do a, a Euros remotely, which was yeah. really bizarre and not the full experience that we we all thought we were getting and things like that. But you mentioned that you broadcast on social media and things like that. We were both massive fans of the Backyard Bundesliga series you did on oh, Twitter. Thank you. thank you. And I just want to know, do you think that stuff like that is important for people like you to share their knowledge to for people that don't necessarily watch German football or the Bundesliga, but know that it's out there. But I think what I'm trying to say is, do you think it's important to share the information so people can experience it for themselves? Absolutely. And I think it's something that we could all do more of as broadcasters. The, the motivation for doing that really was the fact that, um, again, coming from Scotland, from the UK, I've heard for years about how, you know, English football in particular has all these wonderful stories, which it undoubtedly does. And the FA Cup, of course, is a big part of that. And people like to reminisce about the great stories from the FA Cup from years gone by. But of course, being a, a, a German football follower, and this started with me back in the 70s and 80s, I have kind of this treasure trove of German football memories in my head that I've never really been able to share. But I've always been of the mind that every country has its own story and its own stories, plural. And there's a tendency to kind of think that only England has this. And I thought, well, with the start of the pandemic, we have, you know, ample time now to share these things. Let's tell the great stories from the Bundesliga because there are so many. Every club has a story. And um, it's extremely rich when it comes to the German story as a whole. And I think if we can do that, the other thing that really kind of um, influenced me with this was when I uh, was working for BT Sport in the UK and I was covering, amongst other things, Scottish football on site week in, week out. And Rangers, as you remember, were working their way up the divisions. And all of a sudden we were charged with broadcasting these games from venues that I used to sort of grow up knowing about, but never going to for for Athletic and Brecon City and East Fife, and names that people will know from maybe their, uh, their, their coupon every week, you know, from doing the, the pools or the classified results. 
all of a sudden we were broadcasting from these venues and I, I was struck by how rich the narratives were at all of these clubs. They all had amazing stories or something quirky from their past, you know, from 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 30 years ago. And I used to pride myself on the air uh, on telling these stories. And while the raison d'etre behind broadcasting these matches was, of course, because Rangers, big club with a lot of supporters, were involved, you had this side benefit of being able to tell the Brechen or the Stranraer or the East Stirlingshire story. And I, I tried to bring that into my treatment of the Bundesliga with Backguard and Bundesliga. And I thought, I'm just going to start talking and I'll tell you a story today about Armenia Bielefeld or I'll tell you a story today about um, Hamburger Sportverein or, you know, go down the list. And I found that it all just... You know, it wasn't something I really prepared. It just was something in my head that I wanted to share. And I think that if we can do that, then I think we're bringing the football world closer together. And this is the great thing that, that every country does it its own way. It has its own football culture. And long may that continue. Yeah, that's it. Re they really were fantastic and really like, informative, even though they were like five, ten minutes longer. But they were really good. Thanks. Uh, so we're now going to move on to some questions we've had coming from from listeners. And uh, you probably get asked this all the time, but we'll start with it. Uh, so someone asks, uh, for FIFA, how long do you spend recording the lines? Uh, and how like how does the recording process work? Well, it's an ongoing process throughout the year. But on average, it's around 25 days, complete days of recording. Now, I don't want anyone to, to think that that would be 25 days consecutively because we do space it out throughout the year. So maybe, a, you know, two or three days a month, but they are full days and full sessions. And I work very closely with a production team, with uh, producers and with uh, a sound man, Pete, who's been involved with the game for many a long year and, and knows it better than just about anyone. And a lot of it is just trying to keep the content fresh. A lot of it is names. So we're doing players' names, different inflections, as you can imagine, to match the situation. And the idea is that it all comes out as though we are doing it in real game terms. And we're all very particular about things so that if something is not up to scratch, we'll do it again and again after that. And um, that's really how it's done. And I, I think it, it's, it would surprise people if they you know, saw us doing it. Um, the way that we do actually put it all together, because it's a lot of hours. Uh, a lot of it, you know, might sound mundane when we're actually doing it, but the idea is that it all comes together and it and it is pieced together in a way that makes it complete. Yeah, I can imagine it's uh, quite a lot of of work because it's constant throughout the entire game cycle. Yeah. And uh, there's there's a question that follows on slightly from that. But uh, like you've got a, a, a very good reputation for pronouncing players' names the way they want to be pronounced. Um, I just wanted to know, do you think that that's important to do that? Uh, because I know a lot of commentators, particularly in England, sort of anglicise players' names, like Bruno Fernandes would come to mind mm -hmm. and uh, Erling Haaland as well. Yeah, I mean, to give you the, the example with Bruno Fernandes, to use the, the Portuguese way of saying it, I, of course, was doing his name long before he arrived on English shores. So, and this is what I do with every player. I do my research and I talk to native speakers and 
I use the pronunciation that is used by the player himself. And of course, being a fluent German speaker with the German names, I've always done it that way. And I try to do it with with uh, other languages too. I don't speak fluent Portuguese, but I know enough Portuguese people and the rudiments of the Portuguese language to be able to to have a rough assessment before I clarify the pronunciation. I, I always say I can't control what other commentators do. If other commentators decide they want to anglicize names, that's their decision. I just feel that for a game such as this one, a video game that is going around the world and English is the default language, it's a matter of respect. And I think respect for me is really important. You know, if we were in a different culture and uh, our name were being mispronounced every day of the week, I think that might at a certain point eat away at us. And we might say, no, that's actually not how we, you know, pronounce the name. For example, you know, Billy, if your surname were pronounced, you know, say in Germany, Andreves, Andreves, all the time, which is what how a German might say it if he didn't know. You might at a certain point say, no, it's Andrews. Um, okay, thank you. We'll get it right now. For some reason in the Anglo world, that doesn't seem to happen. For some reason, there is a stubbornness about the name that we said when he first arrived is the name that we will say forevermore. And we will not change it. And again, I can, and I'm not trying to change anybody else. I can only control what I do. And um, as I say, I've had a number of... Um, correspondences from people who have been grateful for the fact that that effort is made to get the name right. And whenever that happens, I think, okay, well, this makes it all worthwhile. I'm not doing it for glory. Um, goodness knows it probably would make my life easier if I did anglicize names rather than try to get them right. I'm doing it purely because for me, respect is important. Well, I think it's uh, very funny that you say, um, the, in Germany, they wouldn't mispronounce it as much or they might because even though I'm in Germany and have a German surname, because my German surname doesn't uh, is only one letter different than the former Schalke CEO Clemens Tönnies' last name, uh, I still get that name written in in all matter of uh, work emails or um, rotas or whatever. So it's <laughs> I, can, I can definitely sympathize with that and definitely... Uh, agree with you that at some point it'll eat away with you. Um, but one thing I did want to just throw in, because you said you are a German native speaker um, and something that probably not a lot of people know about you is that you are fluent in German. What made you want to come to Germany? You know, you say you studied here. What made you or what was the pull to Germany for you? It's a hard one to explain, Lewis, to be honest. It goes back to my youth in Aberdeen. As you know, Aberdeen is on the North Sea. And if you were to travel down the North Sea, you would eventually come to Hamburg. And when I was growing up, we didn't have the Internet, of course, in the 1970s. But we did have radio signals coming directly from NDR, Norddeutscher Rundfunk, in Hamburg. And I could hear them in my home in Aberdeen. So this coincided with learning German. We first, um, in school, we learned a language, a foreign language, beginning with uh, the, what was that, primary five, so about age nine. And uh, German was the, the language that I learned. And I really wanted to learn it because the 1974 World Cup in West Germany had been very influential for me. And I'd watched all the games and I was very curious about the country. And it was just something that seemed to come quite naturally to me. I put a lot of work into it as well. Uh, so I, I wanted to really be a, a good 
German student and German speaker. And I had a great teacher, Brian Steele, who helped me every step of the way. And he eventually helped me to develop a connection with a, a very small community right on the border of the two Germanys, as was the case, West and East. So Hessen and Thuringen, for anybody who knows the geography nowadays. And I was on the Hessen side, but literally 10 meters away was the, the border fence and the, the, the border between East and West Germany. So it was very, um, very moving to me that whole period of my life. I went there to study. I went there to spend some time. And this wall, not wall, but this fence, this border was ever present in my life to the point where I still have to use the German expression that, that you'll be familiar with, with regard to people predominantly from the East, uh, die Grenze im Kopf. I still have the border in my head, even though it's illogical nowadays because there hasn't been a border there for more than 30 years. But um, that's really how it started. And, you know, I began to think in German. I began to dream in German. They always say once you dream in a foreign language, then you've sort of made a, a certain amount of progress in that language. And that happens to me, I find, when I go back to Germany now for extended periods, and I'm really only speaking German during the day, you know, for, for, for days or weeks at a time, then the, the dreaming in German comes back once more. So I can't really explain it other than the fact that I love the language. I love the, the texture of it. I know for many people it's a nightmare language because it, it is very hard to master and the grammar is unlike uh, virtually any other language. But because it was the first one I learned, you know, I sort of took it for granted that this is how you, you learn it. And, uh, you know, the, the grammar stays with me just from, uh, you know, from from rote learning things as a youngster. You know, for example, um, not to bore people too much with the grammar, but in, in, in German and you know this, Lewis, you have to match certain things up so that, you know, there's a, a dative case and there's an accusative case. And I simply learned as a young person that mitzu nachaus von beiseit gegenüber außer, after those words, you have the dative case. And um für gegen wieder ohne entlang is accusative or accusative. And again, people are going to say, what is he talking about? But all these things are really important if you want to master German. And, and they have stayed with me, thankfully, to this day. I love that. It's, I uh, I went to visit Lewis recently and I found myself sat in restaurants and bars, just sort of sat there looking at him, pointing at a menu. He's like, could you please order that one for me, please? <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's a great language. If you, if you give it, and it's very hard to, it needs a lot of study. I mean, it really does. I think most people would accept that. And when you're not in Germany, it's very hard to, to give it that, that time. But um, it, it really has its rewards. And I think, uh, it does give you an insight into into Germany and its people if you know that language. And uh, I always feel that I'm in a bit of a privileged position uh, being able to communicate in, in German on that basis. Well, Billy, now you, now Derek said it. Uh, it's it's time for you to start the German courses. You're moving here to to Munich as well, and then uh, we'll start it up again. <laughs> okay, I'll uh, I'll get on Duolingo straight after this, and I'll uh, I'll take a beginner's course. Uh, just. Just got one more uh, listener's question before we move on to our uh, final uh, stuff. Uh, someone wanted to know, do you ever feel the need to switch off from football? Or like uh, Lewis, I'm a good self, is it like a, an obsession? Is it something that you live and breathe constantly? That's a great question. I think we all struggle with that. And I do try to switch off. Uh, there are times when I think it's healthy to switch off. And I find that happens a lot of the time 
maybe on a on a Sunday night, uh, I'll I'll you know say I want to watch a movie or something, anything but football now, because you know I think I think that's just life in general. Uh, we obsess over certain things, but uh, obsessions are not necessarily healthy. And I think it's good to have other interests. Um, but I think if you're working in the industry, unfortunately, it can take up most of the hours in your working life, certainly. And I'm probably no exception to that. Uh, just before we move on, is there something that you do or is there like a, a go to thing you do to switch off? Or would it be like you say, watching movies and disconnecting? Yeah, watching movies. I'm lucky to live very near the coast, and I love to just walk five or six miles and and try to decompress that way. Um, especially in the nice weather, you know, around this time of year, that's that's what I, I do like to do. I'm, I'm also a little bit of a because I studied politics and international relations. I'm, I'm a bit of a a news uh, junkie, and that usually means news not necessarily from the US or from the UK, but news from other countries. So I like to just digest, you know, the German news I will have on uh, most days, and um, you know, whether it's uh, Tagesschau on ARD or one of the other news channels, I'll usually just sit and watch that and, and lose myself in it for uh, for 10 or 15 minutes. And also some of the talk shows on German TV, which have nothing at all to do with football. Most of them tend to be boring for, for the majority of viewers, but uh, I sometimes find, okay, I'll just sit and, and listen to, um, to politicians talking here for an hour and uh, forget about football. Well, I do have one uh, show. If I don't know, you might already be familiar with it, but the ZDF uh, Heute Show. That is definitely, yeah. which is a nice little uh, way of consuming the news while while having a chuckle at the same time. Is uh, is a very with uh, Oliver Vanekin. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that, yeah, great. I mean, the the thing that most people actually uh, don't know is that Oliver Vanekin actually also started as a sports journalist, and you know he moderated the uh, the twenty fourteen World Cup. Uh, he yep. was the presenter for that. Um, so yeah, it's always. It's always funny how even even how you when you try and get to politics or whatever that you still have some kind of connection to the sports world. It's so we have a round of questions that we always ask our guests, um, and it's a it's only three questions, but uh, no no guest is uh, complete without it. So, first question would be your favorite player in football ever. Favorite player in football ever. I think I have to give my vote to Johan Cruyff. And I say that because, uh, again, born in the late 60s, first World Cup I can remember, 1974. For me, even though West Germany won that World Cup, individually that was the Cruyff World Cup. And I couldn't take my eyes off him. And, and I just I wanted to be him. I thought everything he did was just magical. And I think that was probably true of a lot of people of my generation. So, you know, th there have been arguably better players since, not too many, but maybe one or two. But because of my age, because of when I grew up, I think it would always be the great Dutchman. Very good answer. Um, the next one, we'll, we'll tailor it a little bit because obviously you're in the commentating business, but the best match you have ever commentated live. This one I can answer without hesitation. 2005 in Istanbul, I was on site for Milan against Liverpool, which, as you'll recall, looked as though it was going to be one of the most one-sided finals in Champions League or European Cup history. 3-0 to Milan after 40 minutes or so. But then Liverpool produced the comeback of all comebacks against all expectations. 
And I remember thinking at halftime, I better make sure I know what the record margin of victory is or was in a, a European Cup final. And Liverpool went and did the impossible. And I still say that that will take some beating as European finals go. There have been some really good European finals since then, but it's rare to get that kind of storyline at the very highest level on the biggest stage. And so grateful that I was there for ESPN commentating from Istanbul on that night in 2005. Wow. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I did not think that you were going to knock that one out, but uh, <laughs> does that is probably one of the best, best answers we've had. Um, yeah. Our final question, who is the best player you have seen live? The best player I've seen live, um, that's a difficult one. I, I think that, I think I have to say, and again, this might be sort of, you know, symbolism talking. I think I'd have to give it to Diego Maradona because I, I, I think that, I spoke about Christ earlier, you know, he was a genius and, and Maradona was probably the other person from my generation, if you like, because I suppose, you know, I'm very much the Maradona generation. I, I saw him at all the major tournaments in the, the 1980s when he was at his peak. And then I saw him again when I was press officer for the World Cup in 1994 when he was past his best. And there was the unfortunate story that, that came from all of that in 1994 but I think that he, he will go down as one of a kind. Ronaldo and Messi, of course, are in that same bracket as two of the, the greatest that will ever be produced. But I think that I'm going to give it to Maradona because he stood out within his generation. There was nobody really that he was competing with at that time. You know, Ronaldo had Messi and Messi had Ronaldo and they were always being compared against each other. Um, Maradona was simply Diego Maradona and he was a bit of a lost soul, and we all miss him because, um, yeah, he had his problems uh, on a personal level, but what a footballer, what a majestic footballer, and I'm not sure that we'll ever see his like again. Well, I think I speak for Lewis and myself when I, we're both very jealous that you got to watch uh, the, a magician uh, apply his trade so many times. I think that's... That's all we've got time for this week. Again, thank you massively to, to yourself, Derek, for coming on and talking to us this week. Thanks so much, thank Derek. You. Guys, really, it's been great fun and I've enjoyed answering a lot of questions that don't always come up. So credit to you for that. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much. And don't forget, guys, you can always check us out on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. We're on Instagram and Twitter at AT Sports News. Thank you very much for listening, guys. And keep calm and love the beautiful game.